For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we commit this time to you. Lord, we depend on you 100% for you to open your word to our spiritual understanding. And not only that, but that we would be changed, transformed by the hearing of your word to be those who do your word, who obey, who follow Christ in his steps. Help us to do that, Lord. You alone are faithful, but you enable your people to be faithful by your grace. And so we pray, Lord, do this work that only you can do in your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are working our way through a section in Romans chapter 8 that is titled, From Suffering to Glory. We've been in this section for several weeks now, and we've been uh, looking at um, really the future of what God has prepared for all of His saints, uh, a future of glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. And we've looked at something of that glory as the Scripture describes it as the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back in flaming fire with His heavenly armies, the angelic host and the redeemed souls that are in heaven to come to the earth so that the angels might make a great separation between the righteous and the wicked, between the sheep and the goats, between true professors of Christ and everyone else. And it is in that day that the revealing of the sons of God will be manifest. All those who, as we've been learning in the first part of Romans 8, are in Christ. Those who are truly born again. Those who belong to the Lord, who have new life in Christ, who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and who manifest that, that truth by the way that they live by the affections of their hearts, a desire for pleasing the Lord, whereas previously we had no such desire. A desire to think on the things of God's Word, spiritual truth, to meditate on those things, to set our minds there, whereas before we had no appetite for those things. That will all be manifest fully and finally to the entire world to all of the angelic host, to everyone, we will be set forth as the trophies of God's grace, brightly shining in the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He comes in all His full radiance and splendor. So this is the hope that we are looking forward to. This is the thing that we are called to keep our eyes on and our hearts tuned to. Last week we were looking at the notion of the groaning that Paul brings out in this portion of the letter, that there is a groaning of all creation for this great day of redemption, final redemption. The creation itself groans and longs to be delivered because it has been subjected to a futility, to a, a vanity, an emptiness, really a, an inability to fulfill its purpose for which it was designed, which is to fully glorify God. The creation, that is, all of the inanimate and animate portions of creation that are non-rational, non-thinking, so not the, the domain of men, but the domain of birds and fish and beasts that roam the earth, the, the domain of waters and lands and mountains and skies and heavens as far as we can imagine. 
all of that is the creation that is, has been subjected to this futility. And why? Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. And we saw in our study that it was really in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, and through man's disobedience, specifically Adam's disobedience to the voice of God by heeding and listening to the voice of his wife who listened to the voice of the serpent, the lie, that not only are they judged, but even the earth is judged. The earth is judged so that it's difficult now to grow food from the ground. Man works by the sweat of his brow. Man returns ultimately to the dust, which was never what he was created for. That is the curse that is on all of creation. And creation, as it sits, if you will, underneath the fallenness of mankind that stands upon it, is groaning to be delivered from that. And the confidence is God will deliver the creation. And not only the creation, but He is going to deliver us, the children of God, or as the text calls it, the sons of God. All of us, the creation and we, will be delivered into this freedom, a freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we have the groanings of creation, we have the groanings of the redeemed humanity, that's us. And what are we groaning for? We're groaning to be delivered from these bodies of sin and death, right? We're groaning to be freed from the burden that all of us feel and increasingly so as we mature in the faith of the sin that dwells in us and that so easily besets us. And we long for the day when we will be finally delivered. Paul says in verse 22, or excuse me, verse 23, not only that, in other words, not only does the whole creation groan and labor seeking to deliver itself from this bondage of corruption, this curse, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. What is it that Paul is referring to here when he speaks of eagerly waiting for the adoption? Well, he uses the same word, eagerly waiting, that he used back in verse 19 with regard to the creation, having an eagerly waiting. They, as you remember, are um, in this imagery, standing on their tippy toes, as it were, stretching their necks, looking from their heads to the horizon to see when this great day of deliverance will come specifically the day of our deliverance, when the sons of God will be manifest. And here in verse uh, 23, we see the same word. Paul says that we also are eagerly waiting. We have the same anticipation for the adoption. The adoption is, is the word that means the standing or the placing of sons. And you might say, well, <clears throat> I thought we already covered that. I thought that Paul said that we already have the adoption of sons. If you look back in verse 15 of this chapter... He says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. And it's true. We have this spirit of adoption. Really, the, the Holy Spirit of God, who is the spirit of adoption, He is the one who causes us to cry out in prayer to the Lord, Daddy, help, in all the different circumstances in which we may find ourselves so we do have the spirit of adoption, and we do have the adoption in a sense, <clears throat> but we haven't entered into the fullest state yet, if you will. We haven't, we've been born again. We've been transformed from within, right? We are new creatures in Christ. Uh, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, verse 10, but the spirit, that is the spirit of the person, is life, is alive because of righteousness. He has brought us to life. The Spirit of God has breathed upon us and caused us to live spiritually, but we are incarcerated in these bodies of flesh still, bodies of sin. So our salvation is, is partial in this sense. We have been redeemed. We've been justified. In the sight of the Lord, all our sins have been dealt with at the cross. He's dealt with every one of them. 
past, present, and future sins are all forgiven. We are justified. We are declared right in His sight purely by His mercy, by His grace. But there is corruption that still remains in us. Our redemption is not yet final. Our adoption is not yet final. Until these bodies are delivered so that we drop this body of flesh and we're given a new body, a glorious body which is fashioned like the body of Jesus Christ in His glorified state. That's when our redemption, our adoption will be complete. We have the first fruits now. That is, we have the Holy Spirit who's dwelling in us. We've been given a taste of this glory which is to come and it makes us long for more, doesn't it? But we don't have the realization of our final salvation yet. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, the apostle says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, that is Christ, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that's the final reveal of the sons of God that Paul is talking about, that creation is looking forward to, and that we are to look forward to as well. Now we see as in a mirror, don't we? Dimly. But then we will see face to face. We will see Christ face to face. So the adoption is in its fullest sense coming with our final redemption. And that's what Paul here calls the redemption of our body. The redemption of our body. Look with me at first at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this at the beginning of the chapter, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, that's a euphemism for our body. He calls it a tent because it's temporary, it's transient, it doesn't last forever. We know that if our earthly house, that is this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That is this new body that He has prepared for us, that He will show us at the last day. For in this we groan, eagerly desiring or earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. The desire of the Christian is not just to get out of this body. Um, that's Hinduism. That's just to be free from the body, to be kind of floating out in the ether, so to speak. That is not Christianity. The desire of the Christian is to be free of this body in order that we may be in a glorified body, meaning absent sin. With all the vestiges of sin, that is decay, corruption, death, sadness, sorrow, grief, all of that removed finally and forever. That's the groan, the longing of the heart of the Christian. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We desire to be further clothed. The shame in the church today, and I would say, and this has probably been true all along in the history of the church, is that few people know about this redemption of the body. That may be surprising to you if you are very familiar with this concept, but even for those who know about the concept, not many, I would say, really spend their time meditating on it, thinking on what is to come, glorying in the truth that God gives us in His Word. He, he doesn't explain every facet of what this final redemption is going to look like, does He? But He does tell us that our bodies will be fashioned like unto the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is something to that, that that we are to delve into and to think on and to meditate on in our hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom we quote often here because he's a faithful brother in times past, um, he said this in the 1960s concerning the church. And this is concerning the lack of knowledge in the church about this future resurrection and glorification of the body, the final adoption. He said, unfortunately, the Christian church, and I speak generally, does not believe this and therefore does not teach it. It has lost its hope 
And this explains why it spends most of its time in trying to improve life in this world, in preaching politics, in protesting against war and bombs, and in urging disarmament. Alas, it knows nothing of and does not believe in the scriptural teaching concerning this glorification of the body which is to come." End quote. I think that is a really insightful commentary on um, why it is that so many of us, and I'm talking about in the church, are focusing on life in this world, trying to improve life in this world. And I'm not saying that there's something wrong with making that effort. That's a good thing. But are we putting our confidence in that? Are we trying to make this our eternal home when we know that this world is going away? This world is going to be burned up. 2 Peter chapter 3, we looked at that last week. The elements will be dissolved. The heavens will be rolled up as a scroll, and the earth will be scorched or completely dissolved. And God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That is what we are called to keep our eyes on and to look forward to earnestly. That is where we are to put our hope and our attention, not on the things of this earth. It changes our perspective when we begin to think in this way. The writer to the Hebrews said it this way, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin, that is, not to deal with sin anymore, He's already dealt with it, but for salvation. To those who eagerly wait for Him. That is where our hearts are to be, brothers and sisters. Now, Paul says, coming back to Romans 8 and verse 24, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? That can be a confusing verse for many, and it was for me. I definitely wrestled with it. What does he mean when he says, for we were saved in this hope? What is the hope that he's speaking of? Well, it's important to understand, firstly, that Paul is not describing hope the way that we use the word hope in this world. It's not just a wishful sentiment. Uh, The world's idea of hope is a wishful sentiment, isn't it? There's a phrase that was coined um, in the 1700s by uh, an English poet named Alexander Pope, and it's this, hope springs eternal. Right? I think we've all heard that. What's the notion of hope springs eternal? Well, it's that people always hope for the best, especially in the face of adversity. They don't know that the outcome is going to be the best, but they certainly hope for the best, and that is supposed to be some kind of commentary on the goodness of man, the optimism of man. But hope that is used in the Scripture is the Greek word that means a confident expectation of something that will be revealed, but that is not currently revealed. It's not currently seen or manifest. There's nothing uncertain about this word hope. It's, it's all confidence. It's, it's knowing for a fact that something is going to happen. It's like this. If you knew that you were going to uh, receive an inheritance, you were ex- expecting to receive an inheritance, one might ask you, well, what is your confidence based on? How do you know you're going to receive the inheritance? And if your hope is um, a good hope, you'll say, well, I've been named a beneficiary in a will or a trust probably, right? So you know there is a legal document that is undergirding your hope. It's not just an empty hope. Or you might think of taking possession of a property. You've purchased a piece of land or a home, and you haven't taken possession of it yet. Well, if you were asked what's your confidence based on, you should say the title deed. There's some legal documentation that should undergird your hope so that it's not a vain hope, an empty hope. And that is the kind of hope that Paul is speaking of here. It is a confident expectation of something to be received. And the confidence is based on the strength of the source of what undergirds it. In other words, the foundation that it stands upon is the key to the hope. The hope that we see throughout the Scripture is the same kind of idea. It's this confident expectation because the source that undergirds it is the Word of God itself. Far stronger than any legal document that 
can be offered in this world. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, I would invite you to turn there with me. There's some helpful insights about hope and, and about faith and how the, the two are really related. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have a definition of faith that also includes hope in verse 1. The author of the Hebrews says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Uh, what we have here is really a relationship between faith and hope. Faith is the substance, that is the word for foundation, of things hoped for. That would be um, the promises of God. Faith is the, the, the foundation that holds up hope, if you will. So that's the relationship, if you want to think of it in a, a vertical sense. You have a foundation that holds up the building. Faith is holding up hope. But it's important to understand, and this is something that I was meditating on, um, faith is not just an action in Scripture. Faith is not just to believe God. It is to believe God. But faith is also a noun. Faith is also described as a body of truth. Think about uh, the beginning of the letter of Jude, when Jude describes the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about a body of doctrine that has been delivered to us, that is to say, the Scriptures, the Word of God in its entirety, that all relates to salvation, is the faith. And so you can think of this building analogy where the foundation is the substance, or faith is the substance, the foundation. It's the body of truth, the Word of God as a whole is the the foundation that holds up hope. In other words, the Word of God holds up the promises of God so that the promises of God will never fall down. There's also a horizontal element of this relationship as well. There's the vertical, faith holds up hope, but then the horizontal element is in the repeat, this is parallelism in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, now this part, the evidence of things not seen. That is, the convincing proof of the things that you currently don't see, that are invisible. It's like faith is the the glasses that you put on to look toward the horizon to see the promises of God in their fulfillment, even though they haven't actually been manifest yet at this point in time. But you have been enabled to see those promises, to believe those promises, because it's faith that allows you to see them. It is that which convinces you of that which hasn't come to to pass yet. So we have this relationship of faith and hope. You can see they're very interrelated. You could say it this way in short. Hope is faith looking forward. Hope is faith looking forward. So you'll, you'll see a lot of similarity um, when you read texts that deal with faith and hope. They're both related to each other. It's a, a trust in the Word of God fundamentally. Lord, I believe your promise that I will be finally redeemed at the last day. That's faith. Hope is, because I believe you, Lord, I'm eagerly anticipating the body you're going to give me and all of us. I'm hoping for it. I'm expecting it. I'm counting on it. So faith is that which undergirds the promises of God and makes them rock solid. And we who have the gift of faith simply acknowledge that. That's the idea. We believe God's Word. We believe the promises because His faith has come to us. us. His body of truth now resides in our hearts. In fact, it's written on our hearts. So in our context, when Paul says we were saved in this hope, he's talking about a hope that he's really been referring to throughout this passage, back, going back to Romans chapter 8, that whole passage that begins in verse 18 to where we find ourselves and verse 24, is all about hope. He says in uh, verse 18 that 
he is considering that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. There's a looking forward to the glory. Creation eagerly looks for it. We are eagerly looking for it. And it's the Lord who will bring it to pass. So this whole section is really about hope. And the translation in 824 where he says we were saved in this hope it could be better translated for unto this hope we were saved for unto this hope we were saved that is to say we were saved unto this hope that is the hope of our final redemption looking to the end that's what he's talking about We are saved unto this hope of final redemption. In other words, of complete salvation. God saved us in order that we would be fully and finally saved. Um, His purpose has been such from the beginning. He never saved us that we would just be partially saved. He didn't save us so that we would be forgiven our sins, justified, and have the righteousness of Christ given to us, only that we would be lost at the end and not glorified. No, we were saved in this hope, a a final glory. We have to remember that salvation is a package, right, loved ones? It's a package. We were saved. He uses the past tense here, and that's to show your salvation is solid. Your salvation is, is complete in that sense. You've been justified, declared right with God. You have standing with Him, and that will never change. What is changing is that He is changing you in your practice to become more holy, more like Jesus Christ. That's your sanctification. And one day, even the vestige of this body of sin is going to be replaced with a perfect body. Salvation is a package. And He never begins a work in you that He will not finish. That's His promise. So we were saved, and we were saved unto this hope It's not a partial salvation, it's a full salvation. You can look forward to it and expect it because it's founded on the promise of God's Word. And the other implication is this, if you were saved unto this hope of final redemption, is it possible that you should lose your salvation? No. It is not possible that you could ever lose your salvation. Jesus Christ did not die merely to give us the opportunity to be saved subject to our obedience. If that were the case, we would have lost our salvation a long time ago. But it's He who holds us fast, right? Not we ourselves. We have been rescued by God and will be rescued by God in every sense. From the penalty of sin, that's happened. We are being rescued now from the power of sin and we will be rescued from the presence of sin that's yet to come. Titus, in chapter 1, this is Paul speaking to Titus, he says this at the very beginning of his letter, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. This is a wonderful verse because... It deals with hope in the context of the rock-solid foundation of God's promise. The hope that we have of eternal life is certain, is guaranteed. And why? Because God, who cannot lie, promised eternal life even before time began. He promised it. Therefore, it is solid. It, it, It will endure. It is never going to change And because it was promised before time began, that means that it's unconditional. It was promised before we were even created, before we could do any good works or not. God's salvation has been determined from eternity. And it is we who are being called in space and time by the effectual call of the Spirit who put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe the promise of God, Jesus is our Savior. And it's that same faith that looks to our final redemption at the end. 
Yeah, you know, there are many, I would say, in the church who think of salvation the way that the world defines hope. They would say, I uh, hope it all works out in the end. Um, you know, I, I'm hoping that God will be merciful to me. Have you heard that when you ask people about what their hope is for salvation? Um, the question is, on what grounds do you hope that you'll be saved on that last day? What is the foundation that your hope is resting on? If it's just wishful thinking, um, that's a dangerous position to be in. If you are basing your hope on good works that you've done that God will hopefully count in your favor at the last day, there are no good works that sinful men do. All our works are filthy rags in His sight. So that's not a good foundation for hope. Are you basing your hope on God's love that He would never punish you at the last day because He's good? Well, He is good, but He's also a good judge. And a good judge would never allow sin to go unpunished. So our confidence must be in the right thing. And unless your confidence is in the Word of God and in His promise, which is that all who look to the Son of God and put their trust in Him will be saved, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the only answer that will suffice at the final day when we are brought before the Lord's tribunal. We're not trusting in anything of ourselves, but only in the perfect righteousness of Christ for us. Back to verse 24, we were saved unto this hope. And Paul says, but hope that is seen is not hope. It's kind of a strange expression. Why, why, why are you saying that, Paul? Can you see hope? <clears throat> But it does make sense if we understand that Paul's talking about hope in terms of an expectation of something that, is to, that has been revealed. An expectation of something that has been revealed. That's something that you can see. For example, if you're looking forward to taking a trip and the day comes and you've taken the trip and now you're beyond that date, you're not hoping to take that trip anymore. You've already taken the trip. The anticipation has come and gone. And that seems obvious, right? So the question is, Paul, why are you saying this here? But I think we have to remember our context here is Paul is describing the sufferings of this present time and the glory that is to be revealed. Brothers and sisters, what is so painfully obvious to our sight every single day is the sufferings of this present time. It is the effects of sin in, in our bodies and in the world all around us, right? I mean, that's what we see regularly. We see the trials, the pressures, the, the curse that is on creation and on man. I was talking to a brother this morning and just commenting that driving in, he was watching the leaves falling off the trees quickly. There's a, a, a picture of corruption in the world. The creation from springtime when it was in bloom and, and, and beautiful and lively and vibrant is dying now. And all those leaves, which are so beautiful to look at because of their colors, are really a reminder of death and corruption. So yes, we see the sufferings of this present time all around us. It's, it's like the hymn writer who said, change and, and decay in all around I see. And that hymn writer has to quickly remind himself, don't keep your eyes there. Bring your eyes back to Christ. He says, oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. Right? We walk by faith and not by sight, brothers and sisters. It is because of that that we can say, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul knew that the Roman church needed that reminder, and he knows that we need this reminder today. The truth is that Christians are often much more aware of their earthly circumstances than of their heavenly position. Do you know that you are citizens of heaven now? Do you know that you've been seated with Christ right now in the heavenlies? That that is your home, that is where you are seated with Him, that's your position? Do you know that you've been born again, that is from above? 
Yet how often do we think on the things that are above where our home is? How much of our thoughts are filled with the things of the spirit versus the flesh and the everyday of life? This is a transition in our thinking that Paul and the, and the Lord is challenging us with. We have to remember we are no longer in the flesh. Back in Romans 7, we, we looked at that. That means that we're no longer in the, the domain, the realm of the flesh. We're, we're no longer governed by the flesh. We've been translated to another realm, a heavenly realm. And we are governed by the Spirit of God. And that realm is a realm of hope. That's a realm where hope dominates. And Paul really wants us to understand more of what this hope is. And I believe that's why he wrote verse 25. Verse 25 is really a description of hope. And there's three aspects of the hope that I want to note for you this morning. The first is this. Hope is active. Hope is not a passiveness. Look at the verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We hope for it. Paul has been using hope in the noun sense in verse 24 and in verse 25. He uses it multiple times as hope in the noun. The eager expectation of what is to be revealed. But here he transitions to using hope as a verb. Hope is an action. We hope for, we eagerly wait for. And he uses the present active tense. So this is something that is continuous. This is something we are to continually do. And the question is, how do we do this? How do we hope for and eagerly wait for what we don't see? What's the action that's needed? Well, I'm going to take you through a, a couple of texts here in the Old Testament that I think describe this. Um, look with me at Psalm 130. Psalm 130. This deals with waiting on the Lord. And I hope after today you begin to think of or are reinforced in your thinking when you think of waiting on the Lord, not as a passive thing, but as a very active thing. Listen to Psalm 130, starting in verse 5. The psalmist says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption. To wait on the Lord is... um, the most proactive thing that any son of God can do. We wait on Him in this way, by actively looking to His Word, by setting our minds there, by believing the promises of God. But there's another element to this waiting that we see here, and it's the the word hope. We are to expect that He will fulfill His promises. We are to wait on Him for that. In other words, we're not only setting our minds on spiritual truth in general, that's good, but this is really the specific call within that overall command. Actively look to the final outcome. Actively look to what God says He will complete, just as the night watchman waits for, watches for the morning. He's not taking a break when he's watching for the morning. He's not drifting off to sleep. His job is to watch. And so our job is to look to the Lord and His Word and to the end, to that final redemption as as that day draws near. In Psalm 62, this was our corporate reading this morning, this is David. He's writing about maintaining a calm resolve or waiting on the Lord for salvation in the context of his enemies. He's talking about somebody who will attack him or who is threatening to attack him. We don't know who this is specifically, but David starts by saying, truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Verse 5, my soul 
wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. See, he starts with reciting the truth. My soul silently waits for God. But then he talks to himself. He reminds himself in verse 5, soul, wait, that's a command, wait silently for God alone for my expectation. That's the word for hope. My hope is from him. I expect that he will deliver me from this threat, whatever it is. And you say, well, what is that silently waiting look like. He says it in verse 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. Do you know that pouring out your heart to the Lord in prayer is waiting on the Lord, is hoping in the Lord? That's what he's talking about here. Wait on the Lord like this. Wait for his deliverance by setting your mind on him and on his promises. And you have to talk to yourself too. You have to remind yourself, soul, why are you disquieted within me, right? What's, what's really troubling you? Yes, there's an immediate threat, whatever that might be. But my God is with me and he is greater than this threat. He can deliver me. He will deliver me in his way and in his time. Psalm 119, verse 147 I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help, I hope, in your word. So here's another instance. The psalmist is crying out. He's praying while hoping in the word of God. Praying and the word. They go together. David in Psalm 40 says this in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. David knew that His cries were not in vain. He knew that the Lord was hearing his prayers. That is such a comfort to us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? As we we wait on him and as we pour out our hearts to him, those prayers are not falling on deaf ears. He hears every one of them. He has a special interest in the prayers of his beloved, of his majestic ones. Jeremiah said it this way in Lamentations 3, verse 25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So I hope you are seeing, waiting quietly does not mean doing nothing. Waiting quietly means to seek Him out. It means to lean on Him, to pour yourself out to Him, and to look to Him to fulfill His promises, to hope in Him. Have we ever thought about waiting on the Lord as a hope-building exercise? That's what this is. This is a muscle. It's a spiritual muscle that He is building in each of us as we look to Him. So the first point is hope is, is active. It is not passive. The second point is hope looks forward to what is not presently seen Back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 25, he says, but if we hope for what we do not see. Well, what is it that we don't presently see? And we've talked about this a few ways or a few times and in a few ways, but it's essentially our final salvation, right? It's the final deliverance. Listen to Paul's heart as he looks forward to his final deliverance in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Philippians 3, 12, Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. That is salvation, final salvation. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, to have finally grasped it, But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the mature Apostle Paul as he is looking forward to his final deliverance. He says, I press on. He presses on. He looks to the end, to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. This man was one who wanted to trade all of his accolades, his learning, his credentials, his pedigree. He was willing to trade all of it 
for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his Lord. And verse 9, he says, and be found in him. Be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, Paul speaking, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Brothers and sisters, if you are unclear about how you can have standing with God, this is the answer. We don't obtain righteousness standing with God through our works but through the righteousness which is from God by faith in Christ. His righteousness, His perfect life of obedience is what's counted as our own obedience when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God looks at us as though we had lived His life of perfect obedience. It's an amazing truth. That's the gospel, the heart of the good news. Paul wanted to be found in Christ, to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's the goal. And He's got His eyes there. That was also Peter's heart for the church as well. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, says this. And think about this in terms of also um, the activeness of hope. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is going to be brought to you then, when Christ is revealed at the last day and you are glorified with a new body. And he uses this language of of a soldier, gird up. The loins of your mind. It's really a play on words there. In this culture in which Peter lived, Christians, people, wore long robes. And if you needed to move quickly to run or to engage in battle, you cannot have your robe hanging down, flowing around the ground where it can trip you up. You gird that robe up and you cinch it down so that you are free to move quickly. And that's what... Peter is saying that we need to do with regard to our thinking. Pull in all the loose ends of your thinking, like that flowing robe. The way John MacArthur put it, I think, is really great. He said, reject the hindrances of the world and focus on the future race, the future grace of God. Reject everything that would be a hindrance to your um, ability to hope to the end. Any of the, the earthly distractions which is, are really capturing your attention and not enabling you to think long and meditate on what is coming at the end. It's the same idea in Ephesians 6 where Paul talks about the armor of God, right? He says, take up the whole armor of God. It's the imagery of a soldier. And, and again, here's this imagery of the robe. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Pull up the loose ends of your thinking. Don't be scattered in your thinking like the long flowy robe, but pull it in and cinch it down with the belt of truth. In other words, wrap the belt of God's truth around your mind, around all your thinking, so that you're clear and you're crisp about about what His will is and how to live in this life. Don't waste your time on things that are unprofitable and trip yourself up with your flowing thoughts. So hope is, is what is not seen, this hope to the end of final salvation. It's a concept, but it's also, and it's really important to see this, it's, it's also a person. The hope that we're talking about is described as a person. It's Jesus Christ who is called the hope of glory. He who is in you is the hope of glory. Now listen to Paul's encouragement to Titus with that in your minds. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 
Brothers and sisters, that is the hope that we are to keep our minds on. That Christ himself is coming. He is the one who we look forward to seeing. And, and he has been the hope of the saints of all ages. Um, the prophets, all the prophets in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the revelation of God's salvation in his Messiah. Peter talks about this in the, in the first chapter of his first letter where he says that it was these prophets who were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he, the Spirit, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They were writing about the Messiah, but they didn't understand everything that they were writing. They just knew that there would be a Messiah who comes, who would suffer for sin, and who would be glorified after. The author to the Hebrews tells us that Moses had exactly that hope of the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming or considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw the Lord by faith, and he saw the promise of God of the reward, a final salvation that would be revealed, and he kept seeing it. The, the author uses the imperfect tense, therefore, he looked to the reward. In other words, he kept on looking to it. That was the pattern of his life. So the Old Testament saints, they looked forward to the manifestation of God's Savior, His Messiah, who has come. He's been revealed. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who put their trust in Him will not be ashamed. Now, the parallel is that we, New Testament Christians, we also look forward to the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ, but not in His first advent, in His return, His second advent to consummate all of history and to bring an end to sin and to death, to finally deliver us and rescue us. Our hope is not only a concept, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the person. That's why the Scripture says that all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Him. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. He is the eternal Word of God who took on flesh. He is the Word of God, going back to our understanding of the foundation being faith, the body of doctrine and truth, the Word of God. Jesus is that foundation. He's the Word of God who upholds all the promises of God. Are we trusting in Him this morning? I pray that we are. We have a hope that is a living hope, brothers and sisters. It's not an empty hope. It's grounded on the truth and it's grounded on the embodiment of all truth, Jesus Christ, on His person and on His work which He accomplished at Calvary, at the cross for us. Our hope is lively and it is certain. So hope is active. It looks forward to what is not presently seen. Third and finally, hope is supernaturally empowered. This hope that is described is supernaturally empowered. Paul says again in Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The Greek says literally through perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. Through perseverance. That's the word that means to bear up under. That's the word that was used in Romans 5 when Paul said um, in verse Three, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, that is, pressures, knowing that tribulation produces, it works out, perseverance. This ability to bear up under the weight, under the pressure. Paul is saying, 
through perseverance, this ability to bear up or to patiently endure is another way that this is translated, we eagerly wait for it. See, brothers and sisters, we don't have this perseverance, this patient endurance on our own. This is not natural to anyone. Um, This is a gift of the Lord. It's actually something that He is working out for us. This is another muscle that's being exercised through suffering, through pressure, through trials, which, by the way, are all ordained by the Lord Himself for our good. He's using this, pressing down on us, and yet at the same time is the one who is upholding us so that we're not utterly cast down and destroyed. He is purging us of sin as He really develops His own character in us. See, this perseverance, it proves character, or it works out proven character. It it makes us more like Christ, is what He's saying. And as you're made more like Jesus Christ, it builds your hope. Isn't that wonderful? Your hope is something that can grow. It's like a cup that is to be filled up, and so you are brimming to the top with hope. That is to say, you are fully assured of your salvation, and living in the light of that. Hope is developed by the Lord as He supernaturally presses us and upholds us at the same time. He causes us to endure. Paul expresses the same sentiment in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, where this is his prayer for the Colossians, that they would be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience, same word, patient endurance, and long-suffering with joy. Not just grinning and bearing under it, but actually able to be joyful, to rejoice in the Lord and to praise Him through that. That's why this is supernatural. And there is a difference, by the way, between patient endurance and long-suffering. He uses two different words. The difference is patient endurance is this ability to bear up under the pressure, Long-suffering is the ability to do that again and again and again through your whole life. This is one of the qualities of God Himself. He is long-suffering toward us, beloved, not willing that any should perish. And that is one of the fruits of the Spirit that He is working out in us, long-suffering. The ability to bear up under these trials and to have joy in the trials for years as long as the Lord would have us here. There was one illustration. I was trying to think of something that might be a a helpful illustration as we think about this picture of through perseverance, we are eagerly waiting. We are looking to the end as we're being squeezed, so to speak, and joyful at the same time. And I don't think I have a perfect analogy by any stretch of the imagination, but here's one that came to my mind. It was that of atmospheric re-entry, Think of the, the space program, right? Maybe the Apollo program. And um, there's a, an amazing phenomenon that happens when the spacecraft is coming back to Earth and it has to re-enter Earth's atmosphere. This is a, a little text that I took from Wikipedia because it was helpful to me and I wanted to share this with you. L- listen to this in the light of this concept we're talking about of pressing forward to the hope that is before us. Heating caused by the very high re-entry speeds is sufficient to destroy the vehicle unless special techniques are used. The early space capsules, such as used on Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, were given blunt shapes to produce a standoff bow shock, allowing most of the heat to dissipate into the surrounding air. Additionally, these vehicles had what's called ablative material that sublimates, that is, that can change um, from a solid to a gas in an instant without going through the liquid phase, uh, that sublimates into a gas at high temperature. The act of sublimation absorbs the thermal energy from the aerodynamic heating and erodes the material rather than heating the capsule. The surface of the heat shield for the Mercury spacecraft, for example, had a coating of aluminum with glass fiber in many layers. As the temperature rose to 1,100 degrees Celsius, that's about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the layers would evaporate and take the heat with it. 
the spacecraft would become hot, but not harmfully so. This might be something of a helpful image. The Lord, as we are pressing through to the hope that is set before us, is bringing great fire, great pressure upon us. But He Himself is our defense. He Himself is our shield that is taking the, 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 the fire and the heat and the pressure so that we experience some of that heat, don't we? We, we experience some of that pressure, but not all of it. He Himself is absorbing most of it so that He can bring us all the way through to the end. Um, we have many pressures and trials in this life, brothers and sisters, but we are always to be pressing forward to the hope that is set before us. This is something that we can't do in our own strength. Supernatural power is required because this patient endurance has to last for a lifetime but we will continue to bear up by God's grace. Every one of us, He will not allow you to be burned up if you are in Christ. The key is keep looking to Him. Keep looking to the reward as Moses did. Long for it. Patiently wait for it. And for Him in His final appearance, His, his glorious day where every eye will see Him. Friends, just in closing, do you have this hope this morning? This hope we've been talking about, a hope that actively waits on the Lord, a hope that continually seeks Him, that meditates on His Word regularly, that cries out to Him in prayer, pours out your heart to Him in prayer. This is a hope that looks forward to the fulfillments of God's promises of final salvation and the return of Christ. Are we looking forward to that day? This is a hope that is supernaturally empowered to bear you up under all the pressures and which protects you as a shield from burning up as you run the race of faith, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter, the completer of your faith, so that you will endure to the end. Well, do you have this hope? You do if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You do if you're in Christ. But the point is, and the, the exercise this morning and I, I hope in the weeks to come is lay hold of this hope. This is a hope that we are called to hold on to, to grab onto. It's right before us. It's been set before us. But hold on to it and meditate on it and, and fill up the full measure of the hope so that you are brimming with assurance of salvation. Brothers and sisters, that is the balm, the, the remedy to helping you have joy in all the trials of life. That is what is needed so that we are not in a state of depression. We're not dismayed ultimately and, and cast down. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul says, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. This is the mind of the mature believer. Look to him. Look to the end. Look to the fulfillment of his promises. This is the hope which is described as the anchor of our soul. It's Christ Himself in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are full of gratitude as we think about um, Your great salvation and how You have provided for us in every respect what is required to make it to the end. Lord, forgiveness of our sins. We who were your enemies, you have loved with an everlasting love. You have overcome your own wrath and you have turned it away from us by punishing your son in our place who willingly gave himself for us, who obediently went when you sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with our sin that we would become the righteousness of God in him, that we would be transformed to look more like Jesus Christ as obedient sons. Not perfectly, but Lord, that's the desire of our heart. You know it. You know it, Lord, and you are enabling us to obey you more and more as the pattern of our lives. We praise you. Father, we praise you also that through the trials, the storms, the pressures that are ordained by you, 
we have a confidence that you are yourself upholding us, that we will not be utterly cast down. And Father, rather than destroying us, you are actually purging us of sin. You are causing us to hope in you and less in us. Lord, you are directing our minds where they need to be to the final day of redemption, to the hope that is to be revealed. Father, help us to do that. Help us, Lord, when we're in the moment and we are overwhelmed in a situation where we're, um, the voices of our flesh and of the world are yelling at us, calling for us to fear, calling for us to acquiesce to the temptation not to trust you. Oh God, help us in those moments to turn back in our minds to these truths. Help us to remember your promises and to rejoice in you. Help us, Lord, to do this with each other, to remind each other and point each other to, to our, our Savior and to these truths that we are before us this morning. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your great work that you are doing, even here in this room, and that you will bring it to perfection. In Jesus' name, amen.